All right, good morning. Good morning. There we go. I was like, wait a minute. Good morning to the online people. Good morning, Church 21 downtown. Uh, if you're new or visiting with us from the last little while, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. I'm only uh, usually in this location when I'm preaching. I normally, I'm a part of the South Shore uh, congregation, which meets in Delson. Uh, but I'm super thankful to be here with you this morning. I'm thankful that we have electricity and heat. Did anybody lose electricity last night? Yes, fun, some of you. Um, I preached this morning in NDG, and they had previously had a break-in, so right about here as I'm preaching, there's this huge window that is broken and normally covered with plastic, except now the plastic was gone, and everyone is in their winter coats huddled up for the sermon. I had decided I get overheated easily, and I'm like, I shall leave my coat in the car. And, um, and so I preached in two-degree weather this morning, which is very fun. It's very, everyone's very crisp for, for a while uh, in that time. But <clears throat> last night in the South Shore, we get like insane wind, more so, I think, than in the city because we lack the tall buildings. And um, I was putting some wood into our uh, wood stove, and I heard a very terrifying wind sound, like a gust of wind coming through it was my first time this happened where it was like it sound was came through, and I'm like, oh, that sounds really bad. And then I hear something worse outdoors. And our, you guys know what a tempo is? Those white things that people in the suburbs put over their cars because we don't have garages. And so our tempo, which is enormous and heavy and has concrete blocks holding it down and is staked, at least on one side, um, lifted into the air and like moved several feet over and landed like up against our cars. And I was like, oh, no. And so we all run out there. And it was like, our kids are like, it's like we're in a storm on an ocean on a ship because there's ropes and flapping. And we're like batting down the hatches, you know. But we just, we took the top thing off and like tried to put it back. And by God's grace, I was able to drive in this morning without having to put cardboard in like a broken window um, in our car. But the reason it happened is because I didn't properly stake it down on both sides, partly out of laziness. And partly out of the fact that I lost the other stakes because this raccoon had moved into our shed and was using our bucket where he kept all that stuff as his personal toilet for six months. And I was like, I am not digging through there for whatever's in here. Just dump the whole mess into the garbage, which is probably against the law. But anyways, all that to say, I don't remember. Oh, yes, the wind. Yeah, so very thankful. Very thankful for heat. And I'm also thankful for light because I can see from the text messages that the people who are preparing our location in the South Shore, according to Hydro-Quebec, there's no power. So my wife is leaving our house soon to go see if there is even power. And Trenton, the location leader down there, posted a very scary picture of a wireless microphone that belongs to his daughter that's like pink and has, it's like hot pink metal with sequins on it. I may be preaching into that battery-powered mic later today. So just picture me and pray for me. That'll challenge my manhood. Um, man, yeah, so just lots to be thankful for. I'm going to put this over here so I don't get distracted. Um, and I'm particularly thankful for Advent. It's just, this is such a beautiful time of year as a church in the church calendar to be able to meditate on the arrival of God the Son in the person of Jesus into the world. It's amazing. We spend like four weeks or so Meditating on this as we move towards Christmas, which is the Christ Mass, the, 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 the communion feast of the Christ, of the promised one. 
Uh, and so this time of year is just a deeply rich, layered, joyful thing for those of us who call Jesus our King and worship Him as God. It's a beautiful time. Um, we're in the second week of our series on Advent, and the series is titled The Arrival, which is appropriate because arrival, um, Advent means arrival. And more than that, it means important arrival, the advent of God on earth. Um, and so for, for us, last week, who was here last week or watched it online? Some of you. Okay, so last week we looked at why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? And it wasn't because, you know, end of December is kind of like a down time of year. It's really dark and we needed something exciting. You know, God's like, I'll come at the bad time. He probably came later, actually, in more springtime. Um, so that wasn't it. And it wasn't because, you know, the financial year is wrapping up and we need everyone to, like, spend more money you don't have to buy stuff you don't need really quick to, like, you know, boost the economy. That wasn't why Jesus came. It wasn't because we were faced with this invasive, invasive species of fir tree and we have to have like a culling every year lest they retake the city, right? So we kill as many as we can. That's not it. No, it's because humanity was in rebellion against God and God had to come into the earth to rescue us, in a sense, from himself. That's why Jesus came. So that's what we looked at last week. Um, next week, we're going to dig into, like, what is Jesus going to be like when he grows up? What is Jesus going to do in his life, in ministry, and, like, living the perfect life of righteousness that every other follower of Jesus has failed to live? Um, that he would die in our place, that he would set up a kingdom of righteousness, that he would sit on the forever throne of King David. Um, these types of things we'll be getting into next week. But this morning, we're going to focus in on the middle here of the actual historical birth of Jesus in human history and how it impacted some people right then. Um, some people, two categories of people. Some people were just doing their own thing, and then wham, Jesus shows up. And then another group of people who are like anticipating God entering into the world as Jesus. And, and when he does, that they run to be where he is. So those, those two types of people. And um, as we get into our passage, we'll be in Luke 2, which Nate read for us. We're also going to be in Matthew 2, but we'll start in Luke 2. So if you still keep, keep that open. And as we go into our passage, I want you to think about which kind of person are you? Did Jesus like kind of blindside you, hit you like a bus in your life? Or did God put something into your heart that caused you to seek after him? to pursue him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I am not really sure about the Jesus guy at all. I'm just here. And if, you, if that's you, welcome also. So where are you this morning with Jesus? Um, let me pray for us one more time, and then we're going we're gonna to get to work. Jesus, it is in your name that we gather. Um, we thank you for sending your spirit so that though you are with the Father, that you are present with us in your spirit. Spirit, we welcome you. We know that by you alone, our hearts can be changed. Uh, so we ask that you would do that, um, that you would do this thing that's outside of our power, that you would bring um, dead people to life, that you would free spiritual prisoners, that you would give, remove hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh, that you would unstop ears, you would, unstop, uh, you would, you would give sight to the blind, uh, you would do this work in us. We ask that you would do this for our city, Lord, that you would cause your name to be so uh, recognized as, as glorious in the city that it would, for, for a season, that you would be visible, um, that that would lay a foundation 
for, for 100 years of the expansion of your kingdom in this place. We ask that you would do this, that you would glorify yourself. Be with us uh, now, Spirit, as we open the word, um, that you would do the work of making us more like Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to get started by digging right into our passage, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Luke starts with the talk of a census. Now, Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. He kind of came along later. Uh, We believe he was like a physician, medical doctor, some kind of learned guy like that, and perhaps sometimes traveling companion of Paul. Um, And this is because in addition to writing the gospel of Luke, he also wrote Luke part two, which we call the book of Acts. Nice job. Gold stars. So he writes Acts. And in the book of Acts, sometimes when he's the, the, the voice of the, the narrator in the book of Acts, presumably Luke, that as he's writing, he sometimes says, we went to this place or we did this. And so we take that to mean that he's placing himself there with Paul doing some of these things. So he was able to observe early church things, but he wasn't there for when Jesus was doing all of the stuff that's recorded in Luke's gospel. So Luke sets out for himself the task of making an effort to kind of like an academic effort to compile eyewitness accounts to build uh, yet another gospel account of what took place in the life and times uh, of Jesus in his ministry. And if you flip back one chapter to chapter one of Luke, we can see uh, him describe his plan. So Luke 1.1 Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, obviously, that's translated from Greek into English for our benefit, but still, his personality kind of carries through. He seems like a sort of meticulous, thoughtful guy. Maybe not very much fun, but he's very serious, you know, like about getting this stuff down in a certain way. So it shouldn't surprise us that in chapter 2, he begins by rooting his account in history by noting this particular census, right? Under a particular guy's rule, he sort of puts his a historical record that he's compiling within the broader scheme of the historical record that we would recognize by other um, authors. Now, right away, though, we have a problem. If you dig into this at all, and this is true, sadly, of many sections of Scripture that um, very more, like, let's call them progressive people who uh, would like to see the veracity of the Scriptures undermine are actively looking for, like, things to be able to pick at. And we welcome that. The Bible stands on its own grounds of authority, and it, it, it stands up to that level of scrutiny. But just so you know, the debate on this particular spot is we have a timing problem, potentially, with this census under this guy and Herod being dead by this point. Why is that a problem? Well, Herod the Great should be alive, right? Because as we saw, or we'll see in a, in a little bit with the wise, the, the wise men who go and they see Herod, who's the king of the Jews at that point, and he's, they're like, we're here to visit 
the new king of the Jews. And Herod's like, what? You know, like, and he tries to have all the babies killed and all this. Well, he does kill all these babies, but misses Jesus because they escaped to Egypt. All that. That has to happen while Herod's alive, right? And if this census is later, after Herod is dead, who's right, Matthew or Luke? So they'll use this as a launching point to try and undermine Luke's ability to, to um, be faithful to history. Now, so that's at a superficial reading level. If you go deeper, you will find that there are very good explanations for this, possible explanations for this, both in looking at the Greek and what uh, Luke is describing as this guy's rule. There's some issues around those words. Um, and also the census systems of like actually doing a census, actually having everyone register, the method of how they did that cyclically, how long it took. There are very good possible explanations for what would look like at the surface a discrepancy. And if you're really into like researching these types of things, the internet is there for you. You will have a great time. Um, and and we, we always invite you to do that, to dig into that. But that goes way beyond what I'm supposed to be talking about now. I just bring it up to point out one thing. They are not quibbling about if Jesus was born, right? They're quibbling about when. And when you look at it, you're like, this is actually kind of dumb because it's only like a few years, right? They're just being very specific and quibbling about that one thing. The reality is, is most scholars acknowledge that there was this Jewish guy named Jesus around this time, give or take a year or two, that when he grew up caused a big ruckus, left a mark, right? That's just generally the, the accepted thing. And now maybe personally you were like, oh, I haven't really believed in like a historical Jesus. I didn't think there was actually a guy named Jesus. I thought it was kind of like made up. I would invite you to go and, and research that. You will find that if you do not see enough evidence in history for the person of Jesus. Historically, you will also have to give up a lot of history, like a lot of it, um, And if, if you can't trust the history books on that. So let's just assume that we agree that somebody named Jesus was born at this time and grew up to do a bunch of crazy stuff, and, and there's history books written about him, all right? So let's take that as a given. Most people would land there and be like, oh yeah, Jesus. Where people tend to get off the bus, though, is when you start talking about things like, was Jesus God, right? Was he God the Son in the flesh? Did Jesus rise from the dead, or did we just forget where we put the body, right? Those are the types of things where people are like, whoa, 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 we'll wait, right? Now, in my thinking, if you can answer the God question, the rising from the dead question should be no big deal, right? I mean, I've never met anybody who's like, oh, yeah, Jesus was God, but you know, rising from the dead, that's just ridiculous. You know, like God couldn't do that. Most people wouldn't land there. So if you, if you can establish that Jesus was God, you don't have to really worry about whether or not he rose from the dead. That's kind of a given. So the fact that Jesus was God, if that is true, then that means something utterly astounding has happened in human history. That at some point in our past, our collective human past, God himself was among us. That's, I mean, kind of a big deal, right? If you weigh that against everything else, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware. I'm American also, so I'm trying to think of a Canadian equivalent of that and I, the discovery of maple syrup. I don't know. That's probably Canadian racist. But I'm also Canadian now, so I can say things like that. Um, you know, it's kind of a, like a bigger deal than those things. It's the big deal that God existed on the earth at any given point. And so if you think about it logically with me, if that's true, 
shouldn't history show that somewhere? Shouldn't we be able to look back in history and be like, oh yeah, like that's when God showed up. Like there should be like a big scorch mark on the earth, a crater of some kind, some kind of thing that we should be able to look for in history because that would be the most crazy thing, uh, the most epic and important thing that had ever happened, right? That billions of people should consider it the most important thing that ever happened. The book that was written about when that happened should be the best-selling book of all time um, and on the top of every bestseller list, so much so that they don't even put it there anymore because it's awkward and assumed. They Humans would throw out whatever weird calendar system they were using, and they would just start counting the years down in history to when God visited and then start counting up from the, so- the other side right? The way human beings uh, view each other should change. There should be a a perception change, like the earth should get better because God visited. People should um, assign more value and human dignity to to people who are less than. They should open schools and start hospitals and start loving each other differently. And, And the people who don't know, even today, that God was on the earth and visited, that other people would devote their lives to journeying into the jungle to find people who don't know that God visited just to tell them that he did, to tell them the good news, even if the job to do that took thousands of years. And if this was true and God did visit at some point, wouldn't there have been like tremors ahead of time of his arrival? Wouldn't even hundreds of years, there would be messages being sent out that God is coming. God is coming. God is coming. Get ready. And then the day that he came, wouldn't that even today still be celebrated as the most special day of the year? Wouldn't, wouldn't we celebrate it still? And then if this was the case, if this is what a visit of God would look like, if you kind of think that out, that's probably what it would look like, then can't we just look back in history and see if anything like that exists, if anything like that has ever happened? Of course, by now, hopefully, if you're tracking with me, the answer is quite obvious, isn't it? Everything, everything that I've laid out is true of the visit of Jesus. We do count our calendar down and then up from the visit of Jesus. The story of his visit in the Bible is the best-selling book. They just don't write it because it's awkward to have it be on the list forever at the top of the New York Times and and everything. Um, And it is like the most joyous celebrated day of the year for us in the Western world. A lot of the stuff we, in the Western Judeo-Christian world, we carry this this forward. Um, And people the world is different. We have schools and hospitals. I mean, have you ever been to a hospital that's not founded by like some nuns somewhere, some Christians? Like it's, it, I mean, this is like a thing that in non-Western societies, you don't always see this kind of charity and human dignity assigned to those people who are less than, right? You may have a different worldview system where it's like, oh, well, we spit on them because in their past life, they were bad. And so, therefore, they deserve to be, you know, crippled and laying on the sidewalk, right? We have something different. And even today now, we celebrate the day of God's arrival as Christmas. We celebrate it with um, such joy that this time of year has its own movies, it has its own music, it has its own food, it has its own colors, even if they're of mildly pagan origin. Because over the last 2,000 years, every joyous and good thing has been swept up by the church in celebration of the birth of our king. Right, we just took it all. Even those weird pagan Christmas trees. You got one in your house and you're putting red and green on it, which is probably witchcraft. But we don't care because Jesus gives us freedom to celebrate with all the colors of the rainbow. And we celebrate. Even our city, which is secular, hangs lights 
plays loud music, and, and celebrates the birth of our king in a hollow and commercial way. Your neighbors hang lights, eat food, drink drinks, and gives gifts. And the air itself, I don't know if you've noticed this at Christmas time, the air itself seems to just sort of be different. It just shimmers with like a little, little people refer to it as Christmas magic or something like that. But there is something special about this time of year, which is literally just the cultural echo of the moment God stepped into the earth. It is a special time because God did visit, and he visited in the person of Jesus. And we have written record of, of just a slice of it that we get to look at this morning. Um, okay, let's keep, let's keep reading. Uh, Luke, back in chapter 2, verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. This is like King David, right? David and Goliath, David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Boom, God shows up. Not as earth-shattering in this sequence of events as it, as it could be, right? So you've got, um, you know, his mom is like a teenager, um, young even perhaps for, for that time, and traveling in the third trimester. Has anyone here been pregnant? And it's just, you don't travel in the third trimester if you can help it, right? And, um, and then, uh, you know, pregnant before married at a time when that could get you killed, or at the very least, disowned from all of Joseph's relatives, which presumably lived in Bethlehem. Like, they should have been staying at Uncle What's-His-Face's house. Instead, they're at the Motel 6, right? And not even in the Motel 6, it's full. They're in the motel's barn, which motels don't have barns. So let's say parking garage, right? So here you are giving birth to the king of the universe in a disabled parking space next to wildlife, right? Not glorious, not a glorious entrance, not what you would expect of the God King uh, being born. Um, But some of these details were very important. For Jesus to be the promised one, to be the Messiah, he had to be of the lineage of David. So his adoptive earthly father, Joseph, was in the lineage of David. Check. Uh, He needed to be born in Bethlehem. Check. Did that. So this is just the beginning of a long list of Old Testament prophecies about when the Messiah comes. We don't know who he'll be or exactly when, all these things, but like there are some markers of things that he will do and things that will happen. And Jesus is, even at his birth, a few of these things are just being ticked. ticked. And you will see, if you're uh, uh, looking and observing, all of the things that Jesus has done. And sometimes Jesus even said, he's like, I did this because the prophecy must be fulfilled. It's like he had the list memorized and was ticking some of those off consciously. But initially, pretty a humble, humble thing. But then something more exciting did happen. Uh, in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Angels are scary. And the angel said to them, "Be uh, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's interesting. They have Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, and then Lord, Yahweh, God. A d- double identification there of who this is. And then this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. This is another word for host would be army. 
Okay, so you get the army of angels. Remember, they were frightened by the one angel. Now a whole army of angels shows up, uh, but singing. Heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, this last line here, that may sound different to you. Does it sound different to you than what you're familiar with? This last line, peace, earth, and on earth, peace among with among those with whom he is pleased. There is a different way of rendering this based on a uh, translation decision, based on a single Greek letter. Um, and you may be more familiar with this other version, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Right? Does that sound more familiar? This was made popular by the King James uh, Version Bible and codified in several Christmas songs. So we sing it, you know. Um, and if you compare those two together, you might think, wow, those are really different, right? Like one of them is Hallmark card appropriate in its inclusivity, you know? Um, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, nothing controversial. The other one, peace among those with whom he is pleased, like you post that on social media, you're likely to get canceled, right? Like that's like, it's kind of exclusive sounding, right? Like peace on earth with those whom, with whom God is pleased, that's very exclusive. Who... Who is God even pleased with? Anyways, how do we make that, that judgment call? Um, other versions say, um, on whom his favor rests is another way you can put it. Okay, so regardless of how you render this, we can take um, comfort in the acknowledging that both renderings are true in the larger scope of the Bible, of Scripture. That um, it is biblically true that because of God's kingdom uh, rooted in the work of Jesus, that there is this sense of that peace is available to all men and a, and a measure of peace is extended in earth through the work of Jesus. But we would call this maybe more of a side benefit because um, we know that Jesus' primary mission wasn't to bring peace between individuals and communities or nation states. That wasn't it. Mission number one was to bring peace between God and man. That's Jesus' mission. Now, as people are brought into a relationship of peace with God the Father, um, the God of all peace, then they themselves become peacemakers. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That there's this um, change that occurs in the world through the inward heart change of the kingdom of God as it begins to spread through hearts. The people become peacemakers. We begin to see things change on the earth, that there is peace available as a side benefit between other people, but Jesus's primary mission was to bring peace between people and God. And so because Jesus didn't just come and bring complete peace to the whole earth and end war, war and strife still persist, right? Things are broken, like the window at the location I was at this morning, and it was so cold. Um, bad things still happen. And, and God allows this. Why? Well, in part, certainly bad things are a consequence of sin. It's a natural consequence of sin. And yet at the same time, God uses the broken things of the world through his sovereign, whimsical power. He uses them to draw us back to himself. Who's read the Old Testament? Or at least, you know, some of it. Yes. What is your general impression of human people after reading the Old Testament? What? Stupid. That's an excellent word. You're like, again? 
Other words, other thoughts. Simple? Oh, sinful, yes. What was it over here? Violent, yes. People suck, right? That's what I think when I get through the Old Testament. I'm like, idiots, again? Like, you watch it and you're like, over the long arc, people are not good at being good, right? New Year's Day is coming. Some of you will attempt diets or exercise. And then by day four, you'll be wrapped around a bucket of ice cream in shame. And, you know, it's like, that's like the Old Testament. Like, you just see this over and over and over again. And the times that they um, had the hardest time being obedient to the Lord were the times of peace. Why? You get some peace, then you're like, oh, I'm going to, like, make some money, and then I'm going to build some swords or something. And you begin to trust in yourself. You begin to worship other things. And so in his sovereignty, the Lord uses the brokenness of the world, which is not his fault. It's our sin that breaks the world. But he, he uses it like a judo flip. He flips it to our advantage and he uses it for our good to draw our, us back to ourselves. Like me, praying that the Lord would shield our house with angels so it wouldn't blow over last night. It was like you just, when bad things happen, you turn, our hearts turn to the Lord. And so Jesus didn't come to make all the bad things go away, but he came to make peace between us and God. So, peace among men, yes. Particularly among those with whom God is pleased, yes. But whom is the God, God the Father actually pleased with? Who is he pleased with? Well, the Bible seems to indicate that he's only really pleased with Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke audibly. Uh, Matthew 3.17 says, This is my beloved son, beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. He doesn't really speak that over anybody else apart from their connection to Jesus. So how do we, this is a very narrow slice that God has given in the sense he's like, I'm only really pleased with God the Son in Jesus. So God's only really pleased with himself. Only God meets his own standard. Standard's too high. How on earth can God be pleased with us? How can we receive the peace from God that the angels sang about if it's only available to those with whom God is pleased? Well, the answer is, is we have to be Jesus. We have to be in Jesus or in Christ. Paul writes about this extensively through uh, Ephesians chapter 1, which is a very long, winding passage, which is mostly made of commas. So we won't read it now because we don't have time. But you can read it later. It's wondrous. And it talks about being in Christ, in Christ. That if we are in Christ, all the heavenly blessings, peace of God, and then like all the good stuff that comes after that, we receive in Christ. That's where we need to be. We need to be in him and under his blood, right? In the Old Testament, when Passover happened, the people of Israel, were God's wrath passed over them as long as the blood of the lamb that they ate for dinner was over the door frame, the lintel. they paint it on the sides and the top, and then God's wrath would pass over them, right? And then they did this like they had Passover every year, lamb, blood, lintel, over and over and over again. Why? They were anticipating the lamb of God, that his blood would permanently cover us and shield us from the wrath of God and that we could live and have peace with God. So the answer, the gospels answer this question to receive the peace that the angels are singing about is we have to be in Christ. We have to be in Jesus. And how do we do that? Not by works, but by faith. By faith alone through grace alone. That we can enter into Jesus. And this is more than just faith. I know some people have faith 
in Jesus in the sense that they're like, I believe Jesus exists. I believe Jesus can save me. But there's a little bit extra beyond believing he can save you to actually relationally asking him to save you, right? This, the, the acknowledge that he exists and that he's able to save you isn't enough, that you actually acknowledge that, that you want him to save, you need him to save you, you invite him to save you and be king over your life. You have to take that as a step. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not enough just to believe in your heart. There's this relational, verbal acquisition step that God gives us the ability to do. And if we do that, then we are in Christ. And this is a free gift to us. So even though the, the peace of God is available to a very narrow space of just Jesus, Jesus' work on the cross is large enough to gather a great many people in, under his blood and into himself, that we too can experience peace with the Father. This is the reason Jesus came. It's the reason that the angels sang, and um, it's, the, it's the reason that the shepherds react the way that they do. We keep reading, verse 15. So the angels went away from them into, the, into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told him. Amazing, right? They experience this. They go and tell everyone and... Most people don't believe them. Why? Shepherds are liars. Everyone knows this. And they smell bad, and they were a bad choice. God really messed up. He should have revealed this to, like, more respectable people, right? People that people would believe that they actually saw an army of angels singing in heaven. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would God choose the least believable people to give this to? And usually shepherds were, like, teenage boys, you know, they're shooting off bottle rockets and riding the sheep around. And then this happens. They come in and you're like, yeah, right. You guys have a sto- new story every week. You're way too bored. You found mushrooms in the field and you ate them, didn't you? You know, this is just like, they're, they're not believable. Why does God do this? Well, it becomes clear in Scripture, God is not super interested in actually like revealing a lot of what he's doing to everybody. He just doesn't seem that interested in, in revealing. You see Jesus do this too. His disciples are like, why are you telling these confusing stories? And he's like, well, if I spoke plainly, people might understand me and believe. And they're like, okay. You know, like, I don't remember that from my evangelism class. You know, that's a weird strategy, Jesus. But Jesus, as God, like, is the same sort of, like, God-like response to be like, I am going to reveal myself just enough so that if people are seeking me, they can find me. But I'm not going to make a big show for everybody. This is the way God is. And there were people who were seeking him and waiting. They were waiting for this to happen. They were waiting for this. And it's referred to as these wise men, guys. Uh, but we have to jump to Matthew. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 2. I will get water while you turn there. It's funny because <clears throat> many years ago, when you would ask people to turn to a new place, it would be quite the sound. Can you picture it in your mind, the pages turning? Once in a while, you hear someone tear 
a page because the pages are so thin and they're like, don't swear about tearing your Bible in church. But now it's just this sort of pawing motion. All right. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the Great, not the other Herods that came later. Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Awkward moment moment for that. And then we, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, or the promised one, the anointed one, was to be born. And they told him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now, traditionally, we would say like three kings, right? There's the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and all this stuff. And if you watch the movies and stuff, they have these three kings. And you guys, maybe who has a nativity scene at home? Yes, some of you. Where do you put the wise men? Do you put them there at the manger? Or do you put them in the kitchen, journeying? See, after you've been to Bible college, you're like, you're all like snooty about your Bible knowledge. You're like, they're not there yet. Years later. And you put them over, and then you watch the nativity movie, and you're like, wrong. You know, and their kids are, your kids are like, you know, getting all snooty. They don't even understand why. Yeah, so these guys probably came later. They probably weren't kings. They were like more like, if you watch a TV show where there's the king and the queen, and then they have their court, of like fancy people that seem to be there under mild duress. <laughs> and uh, I think they're brought close just so that they can't stage a coup, keeping an eye on them. And um, these guys were like that. They were probably like the courtly people, right? Working for the ruler. They've got telescopes and learning and can read and write and stuff. And so some of them were aware through the alignment of these planets and things that made this really bright thing in the sky. They're like, oh, obviously God is coming right? Like it's happening. We've been waiting. We've been reading about this. Now it's happening. And it's not a validation of astrology. Don't go home and read horoscopes. It's not the same thing. But there's this sense that they were able to see that creation itself could not resist pointing out the fact that God, the creator, was entering in. There was something there that they were able to pick up on. And so here they are asking uh, about the new king. And, you know, Herod is feeling not good about this. And, but he, he, he finds out where it's supposed to be. Verse 8, and he sends them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him or kill him. We'll see how it goes. And then after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, it's not Christmas unless we talk about what the gifts mean. So some of you probably already know this, but it is significant and powerful. Three gifts. So gold signified that Jesus was king in the line of David, the forever king. Um, Jesus was king. Uh, Second, frankincense as an incense signified Jesus as high priest, right? Offering the incense in the temple that he came not just as king, but he also came as priest, which he takes from the priestly line, which came through the lineage of his mother, Mary. His father attached him as an heir to the throne on this side and then priestly on his mother's side. And then finally, myrrh, which was used as an embalming fluid and makes for a very awkward uh, uh, baby shower gift. Kind of like if you show up and you're like, I got you a gift certificate to the local funeral home. 
in case your baby dies. I don't know, like it's a really awful thing to give. But in this case, it pointed to the fact that, that he eventually was going to be that sacrificial Passover lamb, that, he, that death was in his future, not a natural death. So in this way, the gifts tell the story of how God himself enters the world as king, gold, priest, frankincense, and as sacrifice, myrrh. And of course, we go to the gifts because we're a consumerist culture. We like buying stuff. We like giving stuff. This is where we go. This is what our eyes see as Westerners. This is for, for uh, the Jewish reader. It's Matthew's writing to um, more of a Hebrew Jewish audience. They're not, they're not going to bat an eye at this. Like They're like, okay, yeah, of course, Messiah's going to be king. Pri- priest also, awesome. That's a good idea. Martyr? Hmm, okay. Um, but So they're happy with all this. But there's one thing in here that happens in this passage that they feel really confused and negative about. Does anyone identify what this is? One word starts with a W. You can look at your notes. What do they do to the baby? The Worship. What? Why are you worshiping this baby? Even Herod said, he's like, I'll go worship him too. Why are people worshiping a baby? You don't see King David born, or, you know, let's say someone who is actually born under King David, who knowingly going to be the king. You do not worship the king, right? So there's, there's something unusual happening here in this claim of worship. It's the fact that, that there was an acknowledgement, generally, that this was more than just the king of the Jews, that this was actually God. And you know, Mary and Joseph, they don't stop this. They, and you often see that. If someone in Scripture is being worshipped inappropriately, somebody stops it. Angels are like, don't worship me. I'm just a servant like you, right? But this, he, there's a reception of worship because they knew it was true that implausibly and inexplicably, God had become a vulnerable human baby. This is very unusual behavior for God. Right? Every other time God shows up, like in the Old Testament, um, it's like he shows up as fire. And like, not cooking fire, like dangerous fire. Like, don't look at it, don't touch it, stay back, God is unsafe, you'll die. You know, raiders of the lost ark or whatever, face melt off. Like, that's, for everything that's wrong with a movie, the face melting was probably right. Like, it's very dangerous. God's dangerous. We, as human beings, are very vulnerable in God's presence. And yet when God comes as the baby Jesus, he becomes terribly vulnerable to human hands. I know how they'll harm him when they get the chance. They treat Jesus very roughly. But this is the, the plan that God had to make himself vulnerable to us because he loved us. That he wouldn't come in violence as a conquering king, which arguably would have made sense. Like King David killed so many people that when he wanted to build God's temple, God's like, you just killed so many people, though. You know, like, I just can't have you be the guy who build, build my temple. Um, or like the judges, you know, like Samson. You know, like, they just, they killed so many people. It was very reasonable expectation that, that Jesus would come, that the Messiah would come, and there would be violence, right? And yet he came that we would be violent towards him and be killed on our behalf to restore us to our original state with God, sort of to bring wholeness to our relationship with God the way it's supposed to be. Um, the etymology of holiday is basically holy day. And in this sense, the word holy is referring to wholeness. It's a, a sense of being remade and brought back into uh, wholeness or 
perfection. So the Christmas holiday or holiday, holiday, holidays or holy days are essentially a time of remembering when Jesus came to make us whole. He came to make our relationship whole, to make us holy as God is holy, and to fix and restore us to the point where we can again re-engage with a holy God safely by being inside him. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Puritan preacher, speaking on the birth of Jesus during like a Christmas sermon they did, he said this, but now when the newborn king made his appearance, the swaddling band with which he was wrapped was the white flag of peace. That manger was the place where the treaty was signed, whereby warfare should be stopped between man's conscience and himself, man's conscience and his God. It was then, that day, the trumpet blew. Sheathe the sword, O man, sheathe the sword, O conscience, for God is now at peace with man and man at peace with God. Do you not feel, my brethren, that the gospel of God is peace to man? Where else can peace be found but in the message of Jesus? Peace is available to you in Jesus. Peace with God and subsequently a measure of peace with others. As we move into a time of response, I want you to reflect on the possibility of peace that was opened up in the person of Jesus. Not everyone experiences God's peace. Not everyone accepts God's peace into their lives because they do not want to accept Jesus. The root of our rebellion was pushing God off the throne of our lives and sitting on the throne ourselves. And we like it there, right? We have the crown, we have the scepter, we can choose what's right and wrong, we can give ourselves special dispensation, right? I can live with my girlfriend, I give myself an exception, right? Like, you move the thing. Like there's, we do that for all kinds of things. We set the standard. That is the heart of our rebellion. But to turn to Jesus, to get off the throne, to take the crown off and say, please, take the throne of my life. Be my king, be my savior, be my treasure, be my everything. And in that way, he rescues us. Rescues us from ruin and war with God. So peace with God is available today if you'll receive it, if you confess that you need it and lay down your weapons and accept that peace. And don't just believe he's able, but actually take that step and do it. If you haven't done that before, if you haven't actually socially, relationally engaged with Jesus and invited him to do this in your life, then do that because the peace of God is for those who are in Jesus. So ask that God would reveal his peace to you and, and put it in your heart to seek and find I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into response. Uh, Jesus, we are thankful that you have shielded us from the right and just wrath of God against all of the big evils of the world and all the little selfish evils of our hearts, um, that God's justice is coming, Lord, that, that you stepped in and you, and you took that for us and offer us... Um, safe passage into God's presence and more than safe passage, even adoption and more than adoption, adoption as firstborn son status that you alone possess, double inheritance, a double blessing, all the blessings in Christ that, that you have made that available to us selflessly. Uh, Lord, help us to grasp that gift um, this Advent season with both hands and not let go. Spirit, I pray that you would 
again, you would just glorify Jesus' name during this Christmas season, um, that he would not be whitewashed out of it, uh, that those that are facing um, darkness and sadness and shame and sickness and death, um, that you would bring light and joy and love and forgiveness and healing to them this Christmas, uh, that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.